0: Let's get into God's Word this morning. Oh, I guess we better let the kids go. They're going to get antsy. All right, you guys can slip out to children's ministry. Wow. Christmas is coming, right? Uh, I was informed this morning with great enthusiasm. It is now only 16 days till Christmas. Uh, some of you, I know that maybe evokes feelings of panic and stress as you think of the gifts yet to be purchased and the meal that you need to make and things left undone, uh, but I hope for all of us there's, there's something more than that, that there's a sense of anticipation and excitement. Um, some of that's just for the, the traditions that we have, the, the, the Christmas cookies are coming, Christmas dinner and, and gathering with family and, and then of course presents. Right? Um, some of you have young kids at home, or, or maybe even grandkids you have the opportunity to celebrate Christmas with, and they, they just get that anticipation. Those, those kids. Um, my, my Christmas present came in the mail this week, and, and I know that because Beth got the mail, which she doesn't usually do. Uh, and then she went straight from the mailbox to the bedroom and closed the door and came out with a little wrap box. And I'm usually really good at guessing, and I can figure out what it is that she got me, Uh, and and she's doing her little confident head bob because she did something to disguise it, and I can't figure out what it is, but I know there's something good coming, and and I'm going to get to open that. I'm going to get to enjoy that on Christmas Day. There's that anticipation, and and it ought to be there. As I was considering Christmas this year, um, I was drawn to the story of Simeon, Simeon was a man who knew what anticipation was all about. We read about him in Luke chapter 2. Uh, we don't know much about him. Uh, Luke tells us three things. He was righteous, he was devout, and he was waiting. He's waiting. Picture it, maybe you lived in Jerusalem and, and you would come and go from the temple on like a weekly basis. And, and, and yet every time you go into the temple, there's this old guy. He's sitting in the corner. He's kind of milling about in the, in the courts. And, and, and he's not there bringing a sacrifice. He's not one of the merchants, but he's always there just hanging out. And every time somebody comes into the temple, you see his gaze come up and he locks eyes with them with this expectant look and then it's gone. Finally, you ask somebody, what's the deal with this guy? Well, oh, that's, that's Simeon. He's, he's been like that for years. Somehow, He he got it into his head that he would not die until he had personally seen God's Messiah. He calls him the the consolation of Israel. He's got to be like 80 by now. But but it seems that the older he gets, the more excited he gets because the more confident he is. The the time is going to be soon. It's got to happen soon. Simeon was... In many ways, the physical embodiment of Israel or what Israel should have been like waiting. This, this prophesied Messiah that's, that's coming. And, and so the question I want to pose over the next few weeks, and we'll look at from a couple different angles, is what was Simeon waiting for? Why is he so excited? What is he anticipating? When we sing about this long-expected Jesus, what exactly were they expecting? As we come to understand the promises of God and the anticipation of Simeon eagerly waiting this gift, my hope is it will come to a much greater understanding and deeper appreciation, not only for what that first Christmas meant for them, but what it means for us today. If we're going to understand what Simeon must have been thinking as he waited those countless days in the temple and that amazing day when he finally held the infant Jesus in his own arms, knowing this was God's Messiah. Then I think we need to go back to the very beginning, back to the original promise, the Garden of Eden. Turn with me in your Bibles, Genesis chapter 3, uh, verse 15. Um, If you don't have a Bible on you, go ahead and slip up your hand. One of our ushers will uh, grab a Bible for you, um, one up here um, we want you to have God's Word open in your, in your lap, um, that, uh, that we can be reading it together, seeing the authority of God's Word, not my words. A uh, little bit of context as we get started here. It's not hard to go right back to the beginning. It's only a page before this. We read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The world was brand new, fresh out of the mouth of God. Created over a span of six days, culminating in the, the apex of all of nature, God creating man, the, the, the created that is created in the image of the Creator. And, and God authoritatively and joyfully declares over all of creation it is very good. Man and the woman are placed in this perfect home, the Garden of Eden. God would dwell there with them in harmony. They're given dominion. They're given authority to rule over the garden, to to care for it, to shape it and organize it, to use it. Uh, And they're given this mandate, be fruitful and and multiply. And and essentially their their job was to cultivate that garden and fill that garden and expand that garden until it stretched over the world. But you know the story. Into that perfect garden comes the serpent. And we don't need to wonder who the serpent is or where he comes from. We're told, uh, Revelation twelve nine all the way to the back of the book, he's called the ancient serpent, who is called the devil, the deceiver of the world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels with him. It's Satan. Satan, one of, one of God's angels that he had created, um, who became prideful and rebellious against God. And was cast out of heaven for it, along with about a third of the angels who rebelled with him, and they're thrown onto the earth to await their, their final punishment. And it's there that Satan either possesses a snake or takes the form of a snake, and he lured Eve into the first sin. He cast doubt in her mind about the goodness of God. And they ate the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The only tree from which God had said, you you may not eat. And it's so much more than just eating a piece of fruit. It was doubting the character of God. It was a rebellion against his good rulership. Really, it was an attempt to usurp his throne. It was to say, "I, I don't want you to be God over me. I want to be my own God. And in that act, Adam and Eve broke their perfect relationship with God. They brought dissonance into this perfect harmony of creation. And because of that, humanity and the whole earth was subjected to chaos and decay. And ultimately, what God had told them would come, death. Direct result of sin and rebellion against God. The consequence of being at odds with our Creator Genesis 3, 14, God begins to lay out what these consequences of sin will look like. And he begins by addressing the serpent, Satan. And and the amazing thing is this, as we read through this, just watch God in his mercy, in the middle of uttering the curse of sin and rebellion, before he even tells Adam and Eve how this is going to play out and the chaos and the turmoil this is going to cause in their lives, he's already weaving his promise in the middle of the curse. Look with me, Genesis 3, and going start at verse 14 and read down through 15. The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So verse 14 starts off this specific curse given to the serpent. Um, It it might be a somewhat speculation that that snakes used to have legs. And at that point, God took away their legs. Um, But but I don't think that's as clear as some might assume. I think the emphasis here is that he will eat dust. It's a statement of shame and and humiliation. And it's uh, repeated again in Isaiah But verse 15 gets a little more universal in its application. God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. So here's point number one. See the battle of sin. Enmity, strife, struggle, war, really. First between the woman and the serpent. But more than that, God is laying out for them and for us. This this battle is going to characterize the rest of human history. This battle will be between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman, carrying on for generation after generation. This sets the stage for, for human history as we know it. As you study history in school, it's interesting. We, we basically study the, the, the succession of wars, of one kingdom, one dominion rising up and taking over from the last. But in reality, there's one war that rages on. Underneath and through and above and around, all of that is one great war. And it's this war between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. Now, if you're like me, um, you're thinking, I know what the offspring of a woman looks like. I am one. I get that. What is the offspring of a serpent? What is the offspring of Satan here? Um, Angels and therefore demons don't don't procreate. They don't have children. So what are we talking about here? Um, I I think we're we're pushing a little too hard on the passage. Uh, I don't think it's meant to be taken quite that literally. Um, And yet, on the other hand, I think the Bible gives us some hints as to what that looks like. John uh, has Jesus telling the Pharisees in chapter 8, You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. You Pharisees, you're, you're the offspring of Satan. That's a, that's a hard word. 1 John 3 8, John gets explicitly clear. He says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, is from the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And then in verse 10, he continues, By this it is evident. This is how you know. This is how you can see who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So those who practice sin, those who are, not, not, not those who are tempted, not those who stumble with sin, those who are given over to and live in sin, in one sense, are children of the devil. They are his offspring, living with him in rebellion against God. James 4.4 4 elaborates, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be the friend of the world makes himself the enemy of God. And yet, to be even more precise as we push in on this, um, though they have set themselves up as the enemies of God, and and they are, they aren't, strictly speaking, our enemies so much as they are captives to our enemy. The true enemy in this war is sin and and Satan. 2 Timothy 2.26, Paul says that, that sinners may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. It's a statement of salvation. They might escape his kingdom after being captured to do his will. 1 Peter 2.11 talks about sin, saying, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which war against your soul. Those desires, those sinful desires in us, that's that's what we war against. They war against our soul. And of course, the the writing in the context here of Genesis, um, we see this war playing out. Genesis 4-7 says, uh, God warns Cain, sin, sin is crouching at your door. And its desire is to have you, but you have to rule over it. There it is. Its desire is to have him, to manipulate him, to control him. We need to see this battle of sin and we need to see it clearly. So many people go through this life as if it were peacetime. As if our biggest concern is whether or not we're going to catch the next episode of our TV show or if our team's going to make the playoffs if we'll get the next promotion at at work or if we'll really ever get to that vacation that we always wanted. And we carry on from day to day, scarcely even recognizing that we are in the middle of a war. We are under attack by an enemy who would seek to destroy us and we walk along oblivious to it. Right now. Right now. When you go home, This afternoon, when you go to bed tonight, when you wake up tomorrow to go to work, when you stop for coffee break or lunch, when you come home to your family, our everyday lives are lived out in the midst of this battle and bullets are flying. Do you see them? As a pastor, I often get to see a little bit behind the curtain of people's lives. Let me tell you, Casualties are falling. None of us are immune to this. You say, John, you're being dramatic. You're being dramatic. You're a pastor. You, you see everything in this kind of ultra spiritual lens, and, and this is just, that's just not the world we live in. Like, stop blowing this up. First of all, you're wrong about me. I include myself in this call to action. I, just like everyone in this room, get so easily lulled into a peaceful stupor. The busyness of life and the things to do, the distractions of this world, they're they're an allurement to me, and, and I get comfortable just as quickly as anyone. I have to fight against that constantly. And If we fall into that, if we begin to see our world that way, begin to fall into this kind of peacetime, comfortable, casual living... We have already given the enemy far too much ground and we are living in a dangerous, dangerous place. Look back at Genesis 3.1. The serpent was more what? Crafty. He's crafty. Our adversary, the one who seeks to destroy us, is sneaky. Sneaky. He doesn't come with a a full-on assault. He doesn't come with a billboard saying, I'm here to get you. Cain is told, sin is crouching at the door. Picture that. Stealthily, quietly waiting with weapons drawn for that perfect moment where he might pounce. It's not evident that he's there. Remember 2 Timothy, Paul speaks of the snare of the devil. A snare is a, a trap that you set, a wire that you hang on a, on a path that, where it's unsuspecting, where the animal is going to be walking past, minding its own business, going about its day thinking everything is fine, and then it's caught. Satan is the tempter, the one who lures us, who, who promises joy and, and satisfaction and good things and says, come, sin will satisfy you. It looks good and appealing. 2 Corinthians 11 tells us that even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Just because we don't see the battle doesn't mean it's not real. Doesn't mean it's not raging on. And doesn't mean that you're not under direct attack. Personal attack. Okay, well maybe a little bit, right? Uh, But it's not that big a deal. It's little sins. These little peccadilloes that that maybe pop up here and there. But but it's not like it's bullets flying. It's not this sinister war. It's nothing that's going to destroy me. I've got this under control. It's just a little bit of sin. Listen, no soldier goes into battle saying, I hope I don't get shot much. Right? I hope I don't get hit badly. No. No, I promise you sin is crouching at the door its desire is to have you to ruin you and if one little sin at a time is the best way to do that then one little sin at a time it'll be just slowly steal your joy just slowly siphon away your confidence in God's word and your comfort in his gospel satan knows his his fate is sealed There is no repentance for him. There is no rescue for him. And he is maliciously bent on taking with him as many of God's image bearers as he possibly can. And yes, if you're a believer, if you're truly saved, you can't lose your salvation. But you can certainly lose your joy. You can lose your peace. You can lose your happiness in this world. You can lose your reward into eternity. Satan still can cause and often, often, often causes great destruction in the lives of believers. There are a lot of things that you can do, should do to keep your head in this battle. Reading the Bible, fortifying your heart against Satan's temptations. Realigning yourself again and again with the, the, the goodness of God, reminding yourself what we're doing here, who God is. Pray. Pray constantly. Pray like you mean it, right? We're, we're at war here. Our prayers shouldn't, shouldn't sound like someone at a resort calling for the butler. They ought to sound like the guy in the foxhole with bullets flying calling in air support God, I need you now. I'm going down here. Help me. Gather together with God's people and worship, for preaching, for, for real significant fellowship. I think that's something we so so often undervalue in our day and age. Hebrews three thirteen. I hope you're like I've heard this verse a thousand times. It's going to be a thousand and one, and next week a thousand and two. We need this. Exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today. That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's a terrifying verse. I am subject to being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I need the fellowship of the church. That's how we fight against that. I'll tell you, my my experience over the last 12 years as a a pastor in different forms, um, that's the first noticeable step toward life-destroying sin. A quiet step away from the fellowship of the church. It's irregularity at church. It's hesitancy to really plug into a small group. I don't really want to be a part of discipleship. I'm just going to watch from the outside a little bit. You know what? I'm I'm tired. I need a a break. I need some distance. Sometimes it's the cause. Sometimes it's the effect. But it's consistent. Proverbs 18.1 Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire and breaks out against all sound judgment. It's dangerous. It's foolish. I was chatting with Josh about this just the other day. I get get self-conscious when I'm I'm pressing people, encouraging people to to come to church, to be a part of the fellowship, to plug into small group, um, because I I feel like it's more than likely that they're going to assume that that my goal is is somehow for my own gain, that you would come and that I could say, oh, we have 51 people in church this week. Let me... Tell you where my heart is at. I'm terrified. For those who want to live with, with one foot outside of the church, who, who want to come with no commitment, no, no dedication, no meaningful community and relationship. They just they want to come and put on their mask and keep that wall up. Because there's a war going on. And I desperately want you to, to come and stay in, in close company of your battalion. Don't go walking out through the jungle in the war. It's not safe. It's a dangerous place to be. And I've seen people wander out and die. Don't go there. This this is probably one of my most consistent heavy burdens as a pastor is watching people just back off and not being able to do anything about it. Be a part of the church. Be a part of the, the fellowship. Let your guard down. We were just talking in prayer this morning how Jesus came um, to save sinners. I didn't come for the righteous. I came for the sick. And, and yet we always want to come in and pretend like we're righteous and pretend like we've got everything together. Look at me. I've got the, the perfect life. Come on. where are we fooling? We need to come together and say, boy, are you sick? I'm sick. I've got, got a broken life. I'm wrestling with sin. We need, to, we need to continue to march forward together. We need each other's help here. There are a number of things we can do, the word and prayer, the fellowship of the church to help and to keep our head in this battle. But, but I think one thing uh, maybe is overarching here. It's just recognize the battle is there. Just see it. Just begin to live your life seeing the temptations, the trials, the assaults of the enemy. That personal attack against you to know when when you're tempted to sin and you feel that that thought of like, oh, maybe I could do this. Maybe I could get away with that. And your heart longs for it. That is an attack against you. That is a war against your soul happening. That is a bullet from the enemy. Understand the word and prayer and fellowship of the church. These These aren't quaint things that we do. These are our weapons of warfare and we need them. So see the battle of sin. And it's only when we see that battle clearly and we understand the context that we're living in that we can begin to appreciate the anticipation of Simeon and how eager and desperate he was waiting for the Messiah. The hope of that coming rescuer originates right here. Genesis 3.15. That's where it starts. Listen, he says... He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is cool. This is so neat. This is the first promise ever given from God to man. you recognize that? The first promise right here. And it's the gospel. It's the gospel in this embryonic form. This is the acorn from which the oak tree grows. It's all there in this condensed nut. Theological, uh, theologically, we, we, we call this the, the proto evangelion there's, there's your word for the day. Uh, the, the first good news. The original gospel. And it's no exaggeration to say that every verse in your Bible from here on out flows out of this promise. It's all, it all begins right here. This begins the great narrative, the, the one story that, that holds our Bible together from beginning to end. This is where Simeon's hope is rooted. This is the, the fountain from which his anticipation flows. Yes, there's a battle. Yes, we are at war. But there's also a promise. So see the battle, but expect the promise of salvation. Expect the promise of salvation. Um, the battle will rage between the offspring and the serpent, between uh, the offspring and the of, of the servant, the offspring, of the woman, but, but it will not rage on forever. That's good news. Let's look at exactly what this promise is here. Um, the word offspring I- I- in English, this is one of those really good translation choices. Um, it's actually very similar to the Hebrew word in the way the word works. Uh, it-, it can be used as a collective singular, right? You know what I mean there? Uh, it- it's-, it's singular, um, but it's all of us, we are all the offspring of Eve, right? Together we are. But, but it can also be used as a, as a proper singular. I am the offspring of Eve. And so we see both of those used here in this passage. It's kind of this literary play going on. First, it's the idea of this generations of warfare, the offspring against the offspring in this epic battle playing out over the ages. But then the second half of the verse the offspring becomes explicitly singular, the offspring of the woman, and it's a he. It's no longer all of us. It's one who represents all of us. It'll be one in particular, and specifically it will be male. And that male offspring of Eve would bruise or strike or crush the head of the serpent. Interesting, it's left behind the offspring of the serpent as well. It's going right back to the root. The serpent would strike back, but he would only bruise or strike or crush the heel of the offspring. So there's the difference. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. And so began this anticipation, this hope. Somebody's going to come and save us. A male offspring of Eve. So it's not insignificant that chapter 4 starts the way it does. Put yourself in this, in this place of Eve. You've just had this great promise. You're going to have a, a male offspring who will crush the head of the serpent. And then now Adam knew his wife and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. What's she saying? Here he is. The offspring has come. It's done. Our rescuer's here. But of course, you know the story. Cain doesn't rule over sin. Cain doesn't crush the head of the serpent. No, sin gets the better of him and he kills his brother Abel. And The Lord sends him away into exile. Oh, heartbreak. It's not it. He's not the one. I don't know at what point Adam and Eve began to clue in, this is going to be a long-term promise. This is not going to be a a tomorrow fulfillment. Eve has another son, Seth, and her offspring continues to multiply through him. When you look at chapter 5, we have this genealogy, this list of the generations, and, and there's one consistent repeated refrain. And he died, 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 and he died. The curse is taking its toll, one after another. Offspring raised up, offspring brought down. The serpent is winning. Finally, Lamech has a son, and he names him Noah. And he says in verse 29, there's this glimmer of hope out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from our painful toil. That's, that's anti-curse language. Is he the one? Maybe this is it. And it says, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And again, you know the story. The Lord wiped out all of the, the sinful people who had become so rebellious against God. He, he wipes out the, the offspring of the serpent and he spares only Noah and his family. And God renews his promise to Noah in chapter 6, verse 18. He says, I will establish my covenant with you. I will firm it up. I'll reinstate it. Maybe this is the one. Maybe this will be that great victory. And no, Noah falls then into sin and he too succumbs eventually to death. Ten more generations go by, 400 years. And Terah has a son. Abraham. And God, again, reaffirms his promise to Abraham. But it's looking down the road. It's through you, my, my, I, will, I will fulfill my promise. It's through your offspring. And every time God reaffirms this promise, he's revealing a little bit more about how he's going to do it and what it's going to look like. He's building this anticipation. He's, he's peeling back just a little bit of the wrapping that we can start to get a picture of what's coming. What that final rescuer will look like. He does it with with Noah's ark And, and through Abraham's being willing to sacrifice his son and God providing the lamb or the ram in the place of Isaac and the promises to Abraham and Isaac to Jacob. He does it through how he rescues Egypt or Israel out from Egypt and the Passover lamb and, and through the building of the tabernacle and the giving of the law and the sacrificial system and all of these things. God is slowly and deliberately revealing more and more what this rescuer will be and how this is going to work itself out. And yet through the ages, as Paul describes it, sin reigned through death the faithful continue to wait for this promised rescuer, but the wait is long and it's hard. So it's this promise that Simeon is holding on to. And God reveals to him, Simeon, now's the time. It's come. It's here. You're not going to die before you see that promised Rescuer, the one they've been waiting for for so many years, he's coming. Your own hands will touch him, Simeon. Can you imagine thousands of years, countless generations, promise confirmed and built on and added to, but never fulfilled. And now, Simeon, your eyes will see the Lord's Messiah, His anointed one, His rescuer. Sure enough. Angels break into the darkness, proclaim the coming of the king. The nativity story unfolds this baby born in a manger. And he's carried helpless into the temple. The offspring of the woman, Mary. Amazingly, not the offspring. Not the product of a man and a woman but God himself in human flesh in the womb of a virgin. It's what we sing about. We sing Christ by highest heaven adored. Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time behold him come the offspring of the virgin's womb. Listen to this, I love this. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. This rescuer was both the offspring of the woman, as God had promised, but also God himself come down to crush the head of the serpent. That's what we celebrate when we celebrate Christmas. This long-expected Jesus stepping down onto the stage of history, making his entrance into a broken, suffering world filled with pain and death. Come to rescue us. Come to bring this victory. And of course, as promised, the serpent would bruise the heel of the offspring. Jesus would be wounded by Satan. He would feel the sting of sin. Satan's greatest weapon, his only weapon that really matters is the meaning of his name. Satan means the accuser. He has no power to affect your eternity. God is the judge. He doesn't rule in hell. He uh, he will be the primary captive in hell. He has no authority there. But what he does do is accuse sinners. Tempt them into sin and then point out to God, look, look at that sinner. He deserves your wrath, God, and you know it's true. Now, Jesus never sinned, not once. Having been born of a virgin, he's not part of Adam's race, inheriting Adam's sinful nature. He's, He's a new humanity, starting fresh. He's perfect. There's nothing for which Satan could accuse him at all. Satan tried in the wilderness to tempt him desperately into sin and nothing would stick until that fateful day when to Satan's pleasure the perfect son of God is dragged out according to God's perfect plan carried out by sinful humans. He is falsely accused and falsely condemned and sentenced to execution on a cross. How can this be? This is God's rescuer. Is he going to be defeated by the serpent? This this be another offspring brought down by death? He had buried his fangs deep into the heel of the offspring. And in that moment, those, those three hours of supernatural darkness as Jesus hung by the nails through the bones in his wrist, God did something unthinkable. He took the sins, past, present, and future, of all those who would trust in Christ, those who trusted in Him, looking forward, awaiting Him, and those who now trust in Him, looking back to the cross. And He put those sins onto His Son. And then as if His Son was guilty of our Sin, The eternal, glorious Son of God, the, the second person of the Trinity, guilty of lust, guilty of lying, guilty of cheating, of bitterness and anger, of pride, guilty of taking the, names, the Lord's name in vain, guilty of idolatry, guilty of murder, guilty of adultery, guilty of homosexuality, guilty. And God without holding back one iota, poured onto His own Son every drop of the wrath and punishment that that we deserved. God, who breathed out the Son, unleashed the full force of His wrath onto Christ. You see now why it had to be God Himself no other being no limited created being could even fathom what that wrath would be like never mind receive it and the effect was this colossians 2:14 god canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands This he set aside, nailing it to the cross and he disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. We had this record of debt that stood against us. A rap sheet that, that stretched to the floor and rolls across the room of our sin for which we are guilty, for which we deserve wrath, to which Satan can point and scream out at God, do you see? He deserves death hell with me. I demand justice, God. That's Satan's primary call. Justice. Burn him. And he's right. Justice needs to be paid. God's glory needs to be vindicated. So God took that list and he nailed it to the cross. He sets it aside. He makes it null and void. He he fulfills it, nailing it to the cross. It's as though Satan had a a thousand snipers with their crosshairs trained on each one of us. And God took those guns and he twisted them and turned them to point toward his son. And he pulled the triggers all at once and unloaded every round in Satan's arsenal onto Christ. There's nothing left. It's spent. All of the accusations that he had against us were taken into court. They were heard. They were received. They were declared guilty. And they were finally and fully punished in Christ. There's nothing left to accuse. The court proceedings are over. The sentence has been filled. It's absolutely amazing. It's what Paul means in in 1 Corinthians 15, when he says the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The power of sin is the law. That's Satan's power is to say, God, your law demands justice. and, And God gives us the victory over that through Jesus Christ. He had his fangs sunk so deeply into the heel of the offspring. And instead of pulling away, Christ stomped down and squeezed out every drop of that venom into himself and crushed the head of the serpent. And then to prove beyond any shadow of a doubt that the penalty had been paid, that everything had been accomplished. That there was no more guilt, no more shame, nothing left to be done, nothing to which Satan could point his crooked finger, no grounds on which he could accuse. After three days in the grave, Jesus rose again. Death had been beaten. Victory was won on that day. Our sin, yours and mine, if you're a believer in Christ, was actually paid for on that cross. The punishment was dealt out. There's nothing left to be paid. It would now be unjust for God to punish you. And Paul declares Romans 8, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. That's in the flesh of Christ He condemned sin sin in order that the righteous requirements of the law should be fulfilled in us who walk according, not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Amazing. Further down, he continues verse 31. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If the righteous judge is on our side, who can bring any accusation? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Listen, who can bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies, who can condemn. What does Satan have left? What does he have to say? Yes, Satan still lives, he still roams about. The promises of God have not yet been completely fulfilled or we would be with him in heaven and we still wait in eager anticipation much like Simeon for the the fullness of those promises to be finished we'll talk more about that next week but the decisive victory blow has been dealt Satan's fangs have been removed emptied of his power you ever been bit by a garter snake I mean it pinches kind of hurts might leave a mark. They might even draw blood if it's a big one, but there's no fangs. There's no teeth. There's no poison. There's no threat to your life from a garter snake. That's our defeated foe. Oh, he still snarls and snaps. He still bites. But his power has been removed because of Christmas, Because of the coming of that promised offspring, born of a woman at just the right time, we have victory over sin. Do you believe that? Like, really? First, have you put your trust in that Savior? Have you, have you seen your own need to be rescued from the guilt of sin? Do you see this battle raging? Have you trusted in Him? Then do you live like it? Does this joyful victory find expression in your life, in your home, at your work, in your hobbies? Do you live in light of this reality? Listen to me. You are not captive to sin. Sin has been conquered by Christ. You don't have to listen anymore to that old master. We're not defeated by sin. Sin has been defeated by Christ. You're not enslaved to sin. You're set free to live in righteousness. We're not hopeless against sin. We have this confident hope of present eternal victory. Do you live like it? Romans 6. Paul says, the death he died, he died once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin. And alive to God in Christ Jesus, consider yourselves because it's true, not because you're making it up. Recognize it. Live in this way. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, to make you obey its passions. Do not present the members, sorry, do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God. As those who've been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Sin will not win in you. Sin will not win in your marriage. Sin will not win in your relationship with your kids. Sin will not win victory. Our victory has already been won. How sad it would be! How tragic! If we would celebrate Christmas with lights and trees and feasts and presents and then go on living as if the war against sin had not been won. Go on offering our services in sin to a defeated foe. As the rest of the world was celebrating V day, and the doors of the, of the concentration camp is flung open and a, and a feast and family are waiting outside the door. Would we just carry on listening to the guards bark at us, broken in spirit day after day? Now the war is over. Come out of the camp. Yes, this life is filled with trials, suffering, hardship. Yes, we, we fall into temptation and sin. Yes, we live in a dangerous time. This battle still rages on. Those bullets are still flying. We need to take that deathly seriously. But at the same time, recognizing the, the victory has been won. What we have left are these skirmishes, this guerrilla warfare that lingers. But, but the battle, the war has been won. Got to rejoice together and live in that sense of, of victory, of, of triumph. That's what Christmas is about. It's also what communion is.